Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our scripture for today is from Matthew 6. It's on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? I mean, look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns, yet our God in heaven feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? And who among you, by worrying, can add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Notice how the lilies in the field grow. They don't wear themselves out with work and they don't spin cloth. But I say to you that even Solomon, Solomon, in all of his splendor, wasn't dressed like one of these. And if God can clothe in such splendor the grasses of the field which bloom today and are thrown on the fire tomorrow, won't God do so much more for you? You, who have so little faith. Therefore, don't worry and say, well, what are we going to eat? Or what are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? Those without faith are always running after these things. God knows everything you need. Instead, Desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, stop worrying about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And don't judge so that you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt out to you, And why do you see the splinter that's in your brother's or sister's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take that splinter out of your eye, when there's a log in your eye? You deceive yourself. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's or sister's eye. And don't give holy things to dogs and don't throw your pearls in front of pigs because they will stomp on the pearls and then turn around and attack you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We begin our sermon today with the heartwarming story of Job from the Bible. I have a note here to make a joke about how no one reads the Bible if no one laughs at that, so good job. In the book about his experience, the main character, Job, loses everything except his wife and his friends. His children are dead. His health is in the toilet. 
his livestock, his livelihood, everything gone. And he is utterly devastated. And this all happens really quickly as you read the book. It's a fairly long text, so you think we might build up to this tragedy with some backstory, but we don't. And it hits you in the first chapter. Uh, This is the premise of Job's story. Boom. Utter devastation. And his poor wife, equally and utterly devastated, in her grief, having lost her children and any hope for the future, tells Job to just curse God and die. And she often gets painted as a faithless person, especially in comparison to Job. But I understand her reaction better than Job's stoicism. In my own experience of grief, I have cursed God. It's a normal reaction to be upset and to point fingers and to let your animal brain call the shots for a minute. And I don't begrudge anyone who has some choice four-letter words for the one who is supposed to feed the birds and clothe the lilies and take care of us similarly and has seemingly failed to do so. So justice for Job's wife and all those like her. And then most of the book is a series of monologues from Job's friends. And they rally around him and they attempt to care for their friend in his time of need in the best way that they know how, not with casseroles, but with theological explanations for why this happened to him. One friend says, you know, Job, you must have done something terrible. You must have sinned greatly or are harboring secret sin in your heart right now. And now God is punishing you. You're just experiencing the consequences of your actions. Here for you, buddy. And then another friend of Job's says to him, God is testing you, bro. God is testing your faith, but God never really forsakes us. So God is here with you, but definitely testing you. Your children's deaths, the loss of your livelihood and savings and your chronic pain and suffering, all of those are part of an elaborate test for your faith. Because naturally, God's world must revolve around you and whether or not you can pass a litmus test. Love you, man. And then we have the last of the three stooges, and his explanation is depersonalized, which I guess is better. And he says that it's just God's will. Job, it has nothing to do with you at all. God doesn't give a flying flip about your deal because God has got a master plan for this world, and this is just part of it. So they're there, pal. I mean, you really get the sense that these guys think they are doing the Lord's work. They spend a lot of time in this book saying these things. And I realize I'm being very judgy after reading a scripture about not judging. But let me tell you about the log in my eye that I am well aware of. These guys grate on my nerves so much because to be honest, I have said all these things and more to people. I cringe remembering these simplistic explanations for why bad things have happened to people that I have repeated over the years. And I have done this, and probably still do it, because somewhere in the recesses of my mind, where I rarely go because I am so very scared, I am desperately fishing 
for a reason for why this bad thing happened to you and won't happen to me. If I can be a good enough person, a good enough Christian, if I can summon enough faith or eat enough kale or save enough money, then this utter devastation won't touch me. I'll be safe. And if I can come up with a reason for why this happened to you and why it won't happen to me, then maybe the worry that burns day in and day out inside me and is fed by witnessing the suffering of others will just quiet down for a minute. But while I see myself and wish I didn't in Job's friends, and while I empathize with Job's wife, and while I'm terrified to be Job, the person I am most upset with in this story is God. Not because I think that God actually entered into a deal with the devil using Job's life as collateral damage, but because when God finally does say something in this story, a story told by humans about God, God's response is not why this happened which would be helpful information to have for those of us who want to make sure that it doesn't happen to us. But instead, God goes on and on about the cosmos. God asked Job, where were you when the maker of the universe flung the stars in the sky and filled the earth with water? Like that's God's response after a painful silence and the dronings of Job's three amigos. And I cannot help but think of Job's story when I read Jesus talking about the birds and the lilies. You know, it's not good pastoral care to say to someone who is worried if they will be able to pay their bills or feed their kids or endure cancer treatment to just be like a bird and not worry. Or think about flowers and stop thinking about money problems. Now, of course, this is an extended sermon from Jesus, right? This is not a moment of crisis with his disciples, so it's perhaps not fair to say this is not good pastoral care, Jesus. And perhaps I'm kind of worked up personally because I want to like this text. I love nature. I love poetry. I like pulling 10,000 feet up when we're stuck in the mire. I just read a poem by Mary Oliver. I showed a picture of a grasshopper. But you know what? Droughts happen and flowers die. The forests burn. The ocean burns. Even more so now in this acute climate crisis. Birds starve. They freeze to death in February in Texas during a freak winter storm. And dear God, where are the bees? While some of our worries are new, worrying is not new. And while the top layer reasons for our existential dread may be different than the dread when Jesus first spoke to his disciples, the underlying reasons, fear of death and starvation and providing for families and belonging, those remain the same. I asked on Facebook this week what people worried about. 
What kept them up at night? Where did their mind go when they were supposed to be working? No worry was too big or too small. And this is some of what people said. If the random pain is another blood clot, am I messing up my kids? How to make peace with the life that I have not being the life that I always wanted? Whether or not this pregnancy will stick. Losing my parents. Finances. Climate change. COVID. A justice system that isn't just. Growing old alone. That my husband will die. That I'll lose my health care. Being able to provide for all the needs of my family. Being forgotten. What other people think of me. That my mental illness makes me less available to my kids. My children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. Helping my daughter with disabilities. Loneliness. This list takes my breath away. And the through line of this litany of worries seems to be precarity. How precarious our life is. How very close to the edge we all are at any given moment. The edge of poverty, the edge of a life-altering phone call, the edge of our lives as we know them unraveling, the edge of the random chance of tragedy. When, when I was lamenting on Twitter about this whole conversation turning into why bad things happen to people, hovering over this otherwise really beautiful scripture from Jesus, a Jewish rabbi friend of mine said, why they happen is not the question. What to do when they happen is the capital Q question. Trust your rabbi. And I'm betting our rabbi, Jesus, knew that birds and flowers sometimes die. That even in his first century experience with creation, that all was not right with the earth or with the world. And this is a man whose culture depended on the weather for their crops, whose occupying Roman Empire held worship for their rain god because they too understood how precarious life is. And I wonder if what Jesus is saying here, perhaps what God was trying to say to Job, was that he realizes life is precarious, that birds live from one day to the next, and that in a similar way, we do. And yet, an excellent theological phrase, and yet, all of life is lived in the care of God. That there is no threshold we cross as humans, as created beings, where we are not in the care of God, the maker of the universe, the author of creation. 
because as we're reminded in some of the foolishness of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, the one that tells us to turn the other cheek or that the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven, is that these are not mere teachings to make us nicer, more generous people. They're not meant to be marketed as a TED Talk or a self-help seminar. Jesus is not a life coach. Because Jesus is always looking forward to the coming reign of God, to the very real and tangible movement of an upside-down kingdom where the mountains are brought down low and the valleys rise up, where the first are last and the last are first, where everyone is taken care of, a kingdom that we pray for in the words of Jesus, knowing that we are now the hands and feet of Jesus. And that when Jesus says, do not worry, maybe he's not chastising us for being human, which is apparently a chronic condition, and no one's found a cure for it. But rather, he's inviting us to live into the precarity, to learn to love it. Because as Jesus says later in Matthew, those who lose their life will find it. Perhaps Jesus is inviting us gently to imagine a life beyond our day-to-day experience and remember that we are part of an intricate ecosystem of care. And maybe, just maybe, by leaning into the precarity we will find a solid ground that transcends all thresholds. We will find a rooting that connects us to one another. We are resurrection people, after all. Our whole thing is that something as decided and as daunting as a sealed tomb is not a done deal. It's not the last word. Mary Oliver, in her poem that I read earlier, said she doesn't know what a prayer is, but she does know how to pay attention. We may not know how to not worry, how to not be scared that utter devastation might visit us in our household, because it might. But we do know how to look at the birds. We do know how to admire the flowers. And that's not a bad first step into the reign of God. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.